Welcome to Health Setterer's podcast. AARP, the American Association of Retired Persons, is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Americans over the age of 50 maintain healthy and productive lives as they continue aging. One mission of the organization is to spread important and relative healthcare information to this demographic, and AARP's website lists informative blog posts and articles about various health-related topics. Dr. Susan Reinhard is a registered nurse and senior vice president and director of the Public Policy Institute for AARP, who has authored several informational AARP articles and is helping to shape healthcare policy within the organization to best serve older Americans. On this podcast, registered nurse Dr. Diana Mason hosts Susan Reinhardt as she discusses her role within AARP, and more specifically, her work in providing information to tackle polypharmacy and in sharing resources about a newly developed hospital-at-home medical care model for older adults. This podcast first aired on Health Cetera and the Catskills on WIOX Radio in July of 2022. AARP has long been advocating for improving access to health care and promoting healthy aging, and recently uh, has been advocating and speaking out about a hospital at home program as well as advocating for people to pay attention to what's called polypharmacy. Well, leading much of AARP's policy work is a friend and colleague, Dr. Susan Reinhardt, a registered nurse and senior vice president and director of the Public Policy Institute for AARP. And welcome back to Health Center in the Catskills, Susan. Thanks, Diana. It's great to be with you. Great to have you here. So I want to focus on these two issues, but let's start with polypharmacy. You've been speaking a lot about polypharmacy. What is it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we try to give it different names, but basically poly is like Latin for a lot. So so most older adults, you know, people 65 plus, take on average five medications, which doesn't sound like a lot, but then we have like, one out of five who take 10 or more medications. So it kind of escalates, right? And in taking these medications, about one in five medications is potentially inappropriate. And that's the real issue. It's not just the numbers that you're taking, but do you really need them? Is it appropriate for you to take them? Well, so uh, you know, why, why is this of such a concern to AARP? Well, because this really results in hospitalizations. People age uh, 65 and older made 35 million emergency room visits in the last 10 years for what, what is known as adverse drug events. And more than 200,000 are hospitalized because of this. And 50%, they're 50% more likely when you're taking 10 or more drugs. So, yes, we want people to have access to emergency rooms and hospitals, but not because they're having adverse drug mm-hmm. events, which mm-hmm. is often because you're just taking too many and they mix. You know, I always think of our bodies as like a, a, a Petri dish or a, I know that's a technical term, but some kind of a, a vase or something, and we keep pouring chemicals in, mm. and sometimes they just don't work together. Yeah. So we have to be really careful, and we have to work with our 
doctors and nurse practitioners and others about what we're taking. And and that applies to whether you're taking five or you're taking ten or more, right? I mean, right. If, uh, I don't take ten or more, uh, but I want to pay attention to what kind of drug interactions I'm having. So every time I go to my primary care provider, um, Susan, and I know every time um, people go into the emergency room, they ask you, so what are your medica- what medications are you on? And in some cases we're asked to bring them with us. Um, so why, so this has been, this has been a concerted effort, I thought, to try to reduce polypharmacy, to make sure that people are taking the right medications and that they don't have bad drug interactions. And, and, and let's just clarify that sometimes, you know, I may go to a primary care provider who gives me a prescription for something, and then I may go to a cardiologist or a GI uh, provider at gastrointestinal um, provider physician, and and they may each just pay attention to what they're prescribing and not realize that there are all these drug interactions. But I thought this sort of what we call medication reconciliation, where the patient is asked to bring in the medications or a list of the medications they were on, was a way to deal with this. It is. You're right, Diana. It's just that that doesn't happen very often. Oh, that's <laughs> so, disappointing. Yeah, that's, that's part of the problem. <laughs> I mean, if we had that, we wouldn't be in such difficulty. And and you're absolutely right. Most people have more than one person that is, you know, giving them a prescription. In fact, it's more like seven different people that are giving them prescriptions. And they're paying attention. If you're the cardiologist, you're checking those medications, right? And that's not even counting the over-the-counter which can also interact with what you're taking. And nobody knows you're on those different medications. So, yeah, medication reconciliation, a very technical term, done by a pharmacist. <clears throat> I was a visiting nurse. You know, we, sometimes yes. we did. I, I usually called the pharmacist, too, while I was doing it, because they really do know the most about medications, yes. uh, is the best thing. But, th- but the other thing that happens very often is they call it a prescribing cascade. Yes. So you're taking something, you're, and then you feel dizzy. Or, you know, all kinds of things. You're having side effects. In fact, I remember one expert in this field said, any time an older adult has any symptom, you should first start with what are their medications? Uh-huh. <laughs> what are they taking? Because it's most likely a side effect of the medication. And you can, let's start with that. Let's just start there. That's how we put it. Let's just start there, make that assumption, and go through it. Uh, but the, this prescribing cascade is, well, you have a symptom, and the next thing you know, someone prescribes a different drug yeah. for that symptom. Yes. And it just keeps going on and on. And the other thing that happens is very rarely does anyone say when you should stop it. Yes. That's a big, that is our main message to people is to ask your clinician, whoever that might be, that you're seeing, any one of them that you're seeing, am I taking the right medications right now? Yes. Do I need to continue with all of these medications? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I tell this story about my father-in-law who, in his 70s, uh, was worried about his wife, my mother-in-law, who had multiple chronic conditions. And she, again, like cardiac chest pain, this, she was also a diabetic, very, very common. <clears throat> and they kept getting more and more medications. And he started looking up the side effects and <laughs> said, you know what, I think this is what's going on with her. She's falling, and then she would fracture something. It was yes. just getting ridiculous. And then he basically made a deal with the primary care doctor to go through each one and see if they could taper them off, like maybe not stop it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, she had renal problems. You know, her kidneys Mm -hmm. were not functioning well, and that means you're probably not getting rid of the medication like you should in your body, Mm. so it builds up. So you may have to take half the strength. 
You know what I mean? So it's not always stopping. It may be decreasing it or tapering it. And he did this over several months. They didn't do it immediately. He got her down from like 12 different medications to five. Mm. And she was so much better, so much better. She was even getting blurred vision, all kinds of things. And he had no background in this. He wasn't a clinician. He was just curious. And really, he was a family caregiver and wanted his wife to be better. Yes. And I want to endorse what you've said about pharmacists. I think one of the challenges is, for example, with myself, I do a mail prescription service that I use for those medications that I take all the time. Mm -hmm. They are not the same. They are not registered with my local pharmacy. Yeah. Uh, that I use for just short-term or or as-needed medications. So the pharmacist in the pharmacy is sort of at a disadvantage to know if I have other drug interactions because they're not getting the whole profile That's of true. what I'm on. That's true. Uh, so it, it's really sort of up to the primary care provider. But you, if if you do go to, let's say you use a CVS as your pharmacy and all your medications with are with the pharmacy i'm assuming that you can ask that pharmacist you know are am i on medications that are okay in terms of drug interactions absolutely and yeah. i think they encourage it of course they would like to get paid for that which uh-huh. i think would be a good idea because it takes time but you know the pharmacists are great people i'm yes. a big fan of pharmacists yes. <laughs> so they they want you to be okay and they do want to teach you they may may say listen i can only spend a little time with you right now but call me later or i'll call you but i think pharmacists are our best friends when it comes to medications so what advice do you have for people who are concerned about the number of medications they're on and some of the uh, some of the side effects they may be having so I would go, if you can go to, if you have a primary care physician or nurse practitioner, I would start there. Like, could we just look at these, like you just said, a medication reconciliation. Could you tell me? And also keep track of what is feeling different. Are you getting dizzy? Are you falling? Do you have blurred vision? Like, we could keep track of some of those symptoms because that will help the doctor, the nurse practitioner, the pharmacist sort of sort through what could be causing that. So, and, and then write it down if you can. You know, so you remember it next time. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it doesn't get written down. It's not remembered anymore. Exactly. <laughs> and NAARP has a web page on this, do you, or do you have other resources? <clears throat> yeah, I, I sent a few to you, but I, I can tell you I did um, they call it a blog, a short article on this with mm-hmm. one of my colleagues, James, and it's on our website. So it's just um, – it's, it's a long thing, right? H-T-P-P-S, right? Mm-hmm. Blog.arp.org. And then you can keep going, and you can see the different. This one I just talked about is what does it take for consumers to de-prescribe their prescriptions? So it was taking that story of my father-in-law and going through what it takes. So if you go to blog.aarp.org and mm-hmm. look down for the one that's written by you about polypharmacy yep. and your father-in-law, that's great. Okay, yep. we'll find yep. that. Okay. Now, the other issue is you, you, have, you have been a leader in this country and internationally on issues related to family caregiving. You've studied it. You've worked on policies to support family caregivers. Uh, and we're, we're making real headway. Um, there is this emerging um, uh, program called Hospital at Home that's actually, I think, getting a lot of press. And it's where um, people who are acutely ill can say, um, I want to just stay at home and they can get care in the home. Talk about Hospital at Home 
uh, sure. what that is. <clears throat> sure. So the original idea for this came quite a while ago, like maybe even 30 years ago. And the authors, uh, the creators of this come from Johns Hopkins, a very reputable organizations that felt, you know, why are we having so many people come to the emergency room and then being admitted if some of them could be just taken care at home if we give them the proper equipment, like, you know, oxygen, uh, if we give them the communication tools to call us, if we have a nurse practitioner come twice a day to visit, a doctor, like a whole set of services. And this isn't for every diagnosis. There's a very, you know, it might be congestive heart failure, for example, but it's not for everything. And so the way that's been going on, and the research has been very, very good about it. And when we talk to them, there's a few. There's one from Mayo that that had um, some research associated with this. That generally mortality, like deaths, are down. I mean, this is a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. And patients are satisfied. Uh, the trouble is they haven't been asking about the family caregiver. Mm. So the family caregivers, typically you're not alone. I mean, think of it. You're, you're in the hospital or you're not, right? So your, your home is your hospital. Are you alone? Mm. <laughs> right? Chances are somebody is there at some point helping you. And, and um, you know, what is it they're doing and do they need help in knowing how to do all of that? So what happened during COVID is that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, who knew very much about these different programs that exist uh, across the country, but small, there weren't a lot of them, but they were good. Mm -hmm. They decided we need to help people not go in the hospital during COVID, during, mm -hmm. think of like 2020, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, oh my God, how do we help people stay at home? And so they created something known as a waiver. And the waiver is, a, this is under Medicare, uh, not Medicare plans, but Medicare, which the, the uh, original program. Medicare, the mm -hmm. fee-for-service, original mm -hmm. Medicare, that you could go, you have to go to the emergency room, though. You can't, like, just stay at home. You mm -hmm. have to go to the emergency room because they wanted to make sure that you would be evaluated. And if you wanted to, and, it, you know, you had one of the diagnoses that they felt they could, they can send you home for, like, four or five days, a usual hospital stay. Mm. And the hospital gets the same amount of money whether you go in the hospital or you go home. So it's a pretty pretty um, mm. <clears throat> generous uh, payment. And that's good in the sense that they can give you lots of services. I mean, they can even give you meals. Uh, they don't have to. They don't have to. You don't have to have a family caregiver. We've been doing a study of this, contacting those that are, you know, very good in this, well, what do you do? But t there's, no, there's no systematic way of talking to a family caregiver, mm -hmm. which has been a problem all along. Like, do you understand what's going to happen when mm -hmm. they go home? Yes. <laughs> do you have any role, any concerns? So we have been advocating. There's, I, I should say there's hundreds of hospitals now that applied for this waiver because, again, it's very generous, and it does help reduce the strain on emergency rooms, mm -hmm. which is a good thing. And it's good for patients. As I said, I'm a visiting nurse. I like people being taken care of yes. at home if it possibly can. We just want to make sure that the families, that whether it's a neighbor, a friend, a family member who's going to be involved, that they have an opportunity to understand what is their role. What are you expecting me to do? And if I'm going to be doing something, whether you expect me to do it or not, could you show me how to do it yes. <laughs> so that I'm not worried about it? Yes. And, um and just in general, acknowledge that they do have concerns. I mean, our research and elsewhere, as you know, has shown that half of family caregivers say they're worried. Yeah. They, they have to learn things on their own. They feel they don't have a choice. So we want to make sure that all the work that we've done goes into this newer program, too. 
And I think we're having some success. There's a coalition that is working on legislation. It's now in Congress that it hasn't gone anywhere yet, but they, they do have it. And we're trying to get language in that bill that would say that you need to evaluate the role of the family caregiver, how are things going. And we'll see if that goes through. But this, this has all been done under what's known as the public health emergency. You may know that. So mm-hmm. they keep changing the date. Like, when is this emergency over? Well, we're still in it. So for we haven't COVID, stopped the it. The public health emergency for COVID. Exactly. So it still exists. Now, when that when the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services or the president says, you know what, this emergency is over, then this waiver would stop, mm. and you couldn't, you couldn't do it anymore. So this bill would let it go for another two years as they ramp up and do some more studies about how, how it can be, and we just want that to include the family caregiver. So clarify for me, for the hospital at home, the hospital is still responsible for your care yes. when you go home. Yes. And can the hospital contract with a home care agency to deliver those services? Yes. More typically, it's with um, different vendors, like medically at home is is one of them we've been working with. And and they actually have some pretty good videos that maybe some of your listeners would like to see. I'm not pitching them Mm -hmm. by any means, Uh but but it's kind of nice because you can see what it really is, at least from the view of one vendor. So that's become more common, that there are new providers, if you think about it, that are really good with technology. Mm -hmm. Nurses like to work in this setting. It's, you know, less burnout than working in a hospital. So they like it. They go, like I said, usually twice a day. Uh, There's also emergency medical technicians, doctors. You have 24-7 access via telehealth kinds of things, and they give you all the technology. They bring it in. They set it up, um, and they keep an eye on you. And you you can call any time, day or night, for help. I believe they have to be there within 15 minutes if you need anything. Well, that would be a real challenge in our county. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that would be. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be interesting to check in what's going on in your county. Well, and uh, yeah, and seeing what happens in rural areas with this, it, it would be very interesting to see. Exactly. And, 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 and that was one of my questions was with the workforce issues such that they are, um, you know, how do you ensure that a hospital is not just saying, okay, yes, you can go home and we'll have somebody visit you. Uh, but really not providing all that they're supposed to deliver. Right. Well, they do have to. They are monitored by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And so far, our work has shown that they do deliver. They do do that. And they claim they have a waiting list of people that want to work. Yeah, that there's no shortage of workers that want to do this because it's nice. It's nice. You know, you're working with one person in their home, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, you're not running around the hospital, uh, and you have a, a team, mm-hmm. very much a team-based kind of care, so people feel valued. So that I find the workforce part actually quite interesting, mm-hmm. that this might be a model that helps retain people. And so it's very unlikely that we have this available in our county because it is such a rural county and we we have uh, um, three critical access hospitals in Delaware County and um, it's not like they're full capacity. So it's unlikely that, that it's available in our county right now. But I want to talk about the future of healthcare and that if the research that you're doing is showing that this works. How do, how do we reconfigure hospitals 
and what we think of as hospitals. I, I, I feel very strongly the critical access hospitals, like the ones we have here in this county, were developed at a time when, indeed, you would go to this small rural hospital for surgery. Mm. And today you wouldn't do that. And mm-hmm. so I feel like these hospitals, the critical access hospitals, have to reconfigure, have to re-envision themselves, reconfigure themselves. And I'm wondering if there's been any discussions that you know of about, particularly in rural areas, um, how we might help hospitals to rethink what they are. I think that's a great point because I, I mentioned emergency rooms in very urban areas yes. are rethinking. <laughs> I'm on the board of a health system in New Jersey, and they're like, wait, th- what we're doing doesn't make sense. And, and people would rather not go to the hospital yes. if they could avoid it, right? Yes. Even family caregivers, it's like, well, I don't want to park and pay the parking and the food yeah. and the this and the that. It's easier for me if, this, if my you know, husband, my daughter, whoever it is, is, is at home. It could be much easier on me and less costly because I don't have to drive, I don't have to park, and all those things. So regardless of geography, there are some benefits, and the hospitals are thinking they need to do more outside the walls of those hospitals, whether they're very large or very small, like the critical access hospitals you're talking about. So do they become more hubs where services are brought out into the community, like hospital home? I I think that could happen, where you would have this, mainly because of the technology. The advances in technology can make it possible for that remote monitoring. Yes. Um, I, think, I think it is really, pos- again, it's not for every diagnosis. It's mm-hmm. certainly not for surgery. You're right. not having right. surgery there, right? <laughs> right. But, but uh, there's a lot of things that you really, including COVID. I mean, that's what it was started for, yeah. is having COVID treated in the home rather than have you go into the hospital. So, well, And in fact, during COVID, I, th- I think I wrote a blog for this for JAMA, during COVID, um, I believe it was Mount Sinai Hospital, and there's probably others as well, that to reduce the burden on the, on the, um, on the emergency room, the, uh, the, Mount Sinai has a geriatric uh, health care program that's mm-hmm. pretty well known and re- highly regarded. And what they did is they alerted their patients that if you're having COVID symptoms, do not just go to the emergency room. Call us. We will have somebody visit. They were doing home visits anyway. Oh, wow. And Good. they were able to send package, sort of the COVID package to the home mm-hmm. for the family caregiver that included the gloves, the mask, the gown, and mm. other kinds of things. Uh, and, and it seemed like, um, you know, it was a great way to do things. Um, it, obviously, if you needed on event, these were patients who, would, who said, I will not go on a ventilator. Yeah. So you knew that for some people it meant they were actually perhaps going to die at home, which mm-hmm. was okay with them. So that's a, a more complicated kind of scenario. Yeah. But when we think about being a patient in a hospital, I think people don't realize all the risks that you right. that you have, including the lack of sleep. And we yes. have, Right. Yes, I was just going to mention that. It's so hard with all the buzzing and people talking loud. And I was looking at some of that data for my health system, and it's horrible. The noise levels are horrible. And yet in another hospital within the system, it's so quiet. They've really dimmed the lights. They've trained people not to talk right outside the patient's doors. And they've really worked on it. But if you can't sleep, I remember my mother in the hospital saying she thought she was going to go crazy. It was so loud all the time. She couldn't sleep. It's hard. 
And we know that sleep is crucial to recovery and healing. So definitely, that definitely. plus nosocomial infections, infections that you get while you're in the hospital. <laughs> right, right, yeah. right. And medica- uh, medical errors. We, we <laughs> yes. <laughs> they're dangerous places, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, yeah. I think there are a lot of advantages. I really do. And it, it seems like the monitoring, the individual level monitoring is quite good yeah. from what we can tell. Yeah. Okay, so we only have about four minutes left, and in that four minutes, give us a, a sort of the cliff notes of what kind of progress are we making on supporting family caregivers? Well, what's really interesting is, as you know, we passed laws in 45 states and territories known as the CARE Act that says that anytime anyone is admitted to the hospital, regardless of their age or diagnosis, that they have to be asked, do you have someone who's going to help you? And are we putting it in the medical record? And do you need some uh, instruction, et cetera, et cetera? I think this hospital home, I'm actually checking with attorneys now, is going to be triggered by that because you're admitted into the emergency room. You're admitted to the hospital. So I think this is going to be um, another opportunity to keep raising this is the law. This is required that you ask this. And then keep working on resources for family caregivers. We have these videos that you're very aware of mm-hmm. that we have to help people learn how to even give peritoneal dialysis, for heaven's wow. sakes, right? And pain management is our most recent one. So I think we're making progress. There's some federal legislation thinking about tax credits mm. um, and, and what we can look across the different agencies, what they're doing. It's called the RAISE Act. So I can tell you that it's a nonpartisan uh, area. Mm-hmm. Both parties really care about this. Many uh, policymakers are caregivers themselves, mm-hmm. and they want to do something. So I feel very encouraged that we are making progress, but we have to pick up the pace. And so for people who would like more information on hospital at home mm-hmm. and for those who, who would like more ac- like to access some of these family caregiver supports that you've developed, um, how do right. they find this? So they can go on ARP.org slash caregivers, caregiver I think it's called, and that'll direct you to like all kinds of resources. And in terms of the hospital at home, I, I mentioned the one, the medically home that has videos. Mm-hmm. I, I just think that might be, you know, you can see it. Um, and there are others. So there's a, a, the main website is www.hospitalathome.org. That is like the main um, organization website, which can get pretty technical. But there is a section there with stories. Great. So that might be good. And then this medically at home is www.medicallyhome.com. And then it's slash hospital at home videos. Great. And otherwise, go to aarp.org slash caregiver. Aarp.org slash caregiver. Right. Well, as a family caregiver, I thank you so much, Susan Reinhardt, for all of the work that you've done on this issue over many years and, uh, and for coming on to Health Center and the Catskills today. Thank well, you. thank you. Thanks to all of your uh, folks that are on the phone, and have a great rest of the day. And you, and this is Doug. We've been talking with Dr. Susan Reinhardt, a registered nurse and senior vice president and director of the Public Policy Institute for AARP. Thank you, Susan. You're welcome. Bye-bye, Bye-bye Diana. Bye. You've been listening to a podcast of Health Cetera in the Catskills. For more podcasts and discussions of important health issues and policies affecting health, go to Health Cetera's website and blog, at www.healthmediapolicy.com. That's www.healthmediapolicy.com. This podcast was produced by Dr. Diana Mason and production assistant Kai Volsey.